Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, which is the number one stock investing radio show in America. Chris, you guys have been killing it on the show. It's been good stuff. Are you enjoying it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any Anytime I can talk stocks, I'm interested. I'm happy. Well, you know, and it's it's not just stocks. I mean, you you've got you've got a broad a broad view a broad view of the economy and business and everything going on. Well, let's start stocks. Uh, last time we were talking two weeks ago on our last show, you suggested the possibility that as we entered earnings season, we might have pitched expectations so darn low, and there might have been such a perverse reaction to moderately successful earnings reports recently that. Stocks could actually rally on even minorly good news. We have not seemed to be getting a lot of that minorly good news. Hence, we have not seen that effect, right? Absolutely. And I I will say, I did bounce this idea off a couple of the analysts who are regularly uh, appearing on Motley Fool Money. And uh, they sort of agreed with my sentiment. Um, One of the guys said, you know, yeah, I feel like the prevailing thought going into earnings season from Wall Street is just don't disappoint us too much. Company X about to report earnings. You can disappoint us a little, just don't disappoint us too much. But uh, Walmart, which is the biggest retailer by volume, is not going to be reporting their latest earnings until mid-August. But they came out Tuesday morning and cut their guidance for the quarter. They cut their guidance for the full fiscal year. And I appreciate how straightforward they were, Matt. They basically said, prices are higher. Our customers are buying less. We don't want to get stuck with excess inventory. So we are cutting the prices of items in our stores. And I think this harkens back a little bit to what we saw a few months ago when Target came out and really, you know, blew their inventory mix and admitted as such. Brian Cornell, the CEO, basically saying, we blew this. This is on me. I got this wrong. Uh, Walmart doesn't want to be in that position. And I think they were smart to come out and cut their guidance. I think they're keenly aware of the fact that when they report in mid-August, all eyes are going to be on them not just in terms of what were their results over the last three months, but all eyes are going to be on them in terms of guidance around back-to-school shopping. Uh, We typically get uh, the first indications of what the holidays are going to be like for major retailers um, by mid-August, early September. So I I think Walmart wants to be as focused as possible on that. Um, But, you know, in the meantime... Shares of Walmart fell 8 9%, which may not sound a lot, but for th- this is a stock that typically doesn't move dramatically in a single day. So that's a big movement for Walmart stock. And because it is the biggest retailer, the ripple effect was that shares of other major retailers like Target and Costco and Amazon were also down as well because the thinking goes, look, if they're having problems, you know, if Walmart is seeing this, they're not the only ones. And I I think there is sound judgment in that type of thinking. So it's not surprising to see what we're seeing. Just to make sure that I'm following the reasoning that they were following here, they 
are essentially saying we're better off cutting prices and therefore being less profitable on the stuff we do sell. That, that's a better financial proposition for us than keeping our prices a little higher, making more of a profit, but having to carry excess inventory because that costs us having all that extra inventory. So if that's the basic story, what does that tell you from a broader perspective about where they see the economy moving over the next three to six months? Is that kind of a, a mixed story or are they just reading tea leaves and being downright pessimistic about consumers' spending plans? I don't think they're being pessimistic. I think they're um, reacting pretty nimbly. Um, you go back two years uh, at the start of the pandemic, we saw Walmart and Target in particular, Home Depot and Lowe's as well. Um, but for general retail, uh, Walmart and Target, I, I thought, did a great job of acting very quickly in ramping up their online presence, um, enabling delivery, enabling curbside pickup, all that sort of thing. I think this is Walmart acting nimbly in a different way, because when you look at any retailer or any restaurant for that matter, um, there are a couple of different ways to measure how are they doing. And one is something referred to as the average ticket, which is simply how much are people spending when they go in you know, or when they come out of the store? Before they leave, you know, and you and you like to see that average ticket going up higher and higher if possible. But another thing to keep an eye on for restaurants and retailers is traffic. And it's simply how many people are coming in? What are the tra- like how many transactions are they doing? And in Walmart's case, they want to keep the foot traffic. They want to keep people coming in. Um, they are willing to take a hit in terms of the amount that they're selling. So their average ticket comes down, but they don't want to sacrifice the number of people coming in because that's harder to get. You want people in the habit of shopping at your store. And so Walmart, I think, is being very smart about saying, look, this we're going to take a short-term hit here, but we can't turn people off. We've worked hard to earn the customers that we have to earn their trust and we want to keep presenting a great value to them. And what we don't want in tough financial times when inflation is higher, we don't want our customers leaving us and going to further discount retailers like Dollar Tree, Dollar General, that sort of thing. Who are thriving currently, which is interesting. I mean, what I what's so fascinating to me about what you just laid out is that it sort of presents a case study of why there is a divergence between what happens in the stock market and what's going on in the real economy. They're not always telling the same story. What you just said was sort of these for want of a shoe, the the nail was lost or whatever, you know, kind of chain reaction stories where Walmart is taking this nimble approach, as you put it, to it's a business strategy where they're prioritizing foot traffic, consumer loyalty, the shopping habit with them for business reasons. It's not necessarily a read, a pessimistic read on the economy. Their decision leads to an earnings reaction, a reaction on Wall Street that drags down other retailers, that puts a downward pressure on the stock market. So at the end of the day, you could look at what's been happening in the stock market and say, oh, boy, it must be a sign that the real economy 
is in for some rough times. And you're saying, well, not, not necessarily. Super, super interesting. Speaking of being nimble and making smart judgments about the state of the economy, it seems like not every board of every company thinks that their own CEO has been doing that. And that's led to a couple of axing moments recently. What, what's going on with that? Now, the latest one is um, not a particularly big public company, but it's a brand that I think a lot of people are very familiar with, and it's Weber Grill. Um, uh, their CEO of more than four years just got the axe from the board of directors. Weber Grill came public last year. The stock has basically gone you know, straight down um, since the early days of going public. And um, this, you know... Four years is a decent tenure. Um, it's you know we've seen some boards um, pull the trigger maybe a little unfairly too early. I think in in the case of Weber Grill, you know four years is a is a decent uh, amount of time to build up a track record as a CEO. But I think I think we're going to see more of this, Matt. I think that um, in the same way that um, Wall Street looks at public companies. And says, "Okay, you got to show us something. You, you know, it. You either have to show us progress or a plan." Um, and I, I think boards are doing the same thing. Um, and part of it is boards demonstrating to Wall Street, like, "Hey, we're not just sitting on our hands here. Um, we we actually think that um, brighter days are ahead for our company, and we're going to get a CEO who can lead us there." Um, th- this is somewhat terrible of me to say, I think the mistake Weber Grill has made um, is they've made their products too good and too durable. I have a Weber Grill that is 16 years old. I've replaced some of the parts, but I don't really have a need to replace the grill. Um, uh, I'm wondering if there's a way for them to, I, I don't want them to start making inferior products because I don't think that's necessarily a recipe for success, but it seems like Weber grill needs to somehow get into the subscription business. Um, whether it's like spices or like get people get on the food side of the business. Maybe there's an, an opportunity there, but in terms of like the basic product that they make, yeah, it's too durable. I'm like, I'm, I'm probably not going to buy another grill for at least, you know, a few more years, in which case I'm someone who's buying their product every 20 years. That's not a great recipe for growth. I, first of all, want to thank our sponsor, Weber Grills. Second of all, <laughs> no, that's a joke. Second of all, um, it's so funny you say that. I'm having trouble with my grill. I've had my grill for, I don't know, well nigh on, it's over a decade. And finally, I'm beginning to have the heat dispersion is all off. I think some of those uh, th- those heat disperser elements are rusted. People don't need to hear about my personal grill problems, but I'm in the market potentially for some replacement parts or a new grill. So now I'm going to take your advice and um, Weber should compensate you for that. Look, I, I, they will be on sale next month. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. So, and look, they're looking to move products. So you can, you can get yourself into a new grill at a good price. I promise. Wow. News you can use during the (laughs) summertime from Chris Hill. Um, You know, one of your analysts made a comment the other day. I actually think you did a segment about this on Motley Fool Money um, about why he is never betting against Google. Now, beside it's futile to resist the Borg, why is it that you never bet against Google? What's up with that? Uh, I have to give credit to my colleague, Jason Moser, who said this on the show the other day. Um, we were talking about 
Uh, I think we were talking about Snap, uh, the parent company of Snapchat and uh, sort of social media companies. Um, and he said, social is fleeting, search is forever. And, you know, dang it. And the, oh, did he trademark that? That's I, so good. He, he may have quoted someone. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't really remember. But um, but uh, I, I'm giving him credit for it. Um, but you know, the it came in the context of a conversation of like shares of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, were selling off because Snap came out um, with a bad report. And it was the same sort of what, what we're seeing in retail today, we were seeing last week. It's like, well, if people are spending less money on advertising on digital platforms like Snapchat, that's probably going to affect other companies like Facebook and Google too. Um, and Jason said, I don't know that I buy that because social media platforms kind of come and go and search is something that everybody needs and everybody uses. Search is not a fad. We're always going to be searching for something. And and as you said, you know, Google is the board. Google is the most dominant search platform. God bless Microsoft for really giving it a shot with Bing. Uh, I think that's the name of their search. You know, there are other search engines technically. I'm not entirely sure why you would use them. Um, I live but, in Pawnee, Indiana, so I still use Alta Vista. Right, exactly. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, if you broaden out from the, the comment that he made about search, I, I think it's increasingly a good way to think about investing is, well, what are the things that aren't going to change? You can, you know, you can make money in fad businesses and, and trends that don't last, but if you can own shares of businesses that are tied to things that never change, that are, that are just indelible. Um, and I think that search is one of those things. It's why I'm an Alphabet shareholder. To take a completely different type of business, it's why I'm a, a, a shareholder of Sherwin-Williams, the paint company. Um, so, Because uh, people are always going to be painting and repainting. They just always are. So, um, uh, yeah, the, his comment, socialist fleeting searches forever stuck with me and figured I'd share it with you as well. It's fantastic. It really is good. And just to sort of a vote of in favor of that sentiment, one of my, it was actually my second job in Washington. I, I was working for a think tank and we were doing internet policy. This was even before I met Chris Hill and we've known each other almost two decades. I And at the time, the discussion around the internet was, well, what's going to be the killer app for the internet? What's, what's going to be the thing that everyone needs that's going to drive the growth of the internet explosively? And at the time, people thought it was going to be portals. And that's why, you know, at, at, all joking about Alta Vista aside, you know, legacy companies from the time like Yahoo were all trying to build up their, their, their homepage, you know, as kind of a portal for how you would access everything on the internet. They wanted everything to flow through them. Well, it turned out that the killer app was search. Google figured it out. They figured out the best system for it. I, this is not sponsored by Google. This is just, it's just true. It's, it's the best search engine and it's something that everybody needs. And that was the killer app, the way to organize all the information on the internet and access it easily that's the thing that drove the growth and that everybody needs. So totally on board with that statement. Speaking of getting assimilated by the Borg and you know just providing what everybody needs, you want to point out that the unimpeded growth of the world's 
global behemoth that does everything, Amazon, has continued in the last week. They've bought a primary care company. They're, they're what? What's 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 up with that? Dr. Bezos, we'll see you now. Oh, no. Um, yes. Uh, Amazon last week bought um, a, a primary care uh, essentially franchise called One Life Healthcare. And they did it for just under four billion dollars, which is for Google or for Amazon, not a, a, a huge amount of money. Um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is it's it's the third largest acquisition that Amazon has ever made. Uh, Whole Foods uh, being the biggest, uh, MGM Studios being second. My colleague Bill Mann made the made the point that uh, Amazon has really grown organically much more so than other large companies, which have sort of grown through acquisition. Um, but this move into healthcare um, really sort of is, is one step further. Um, uh, they bought up an online pharmacy, I think called PillPack uh, a few years back. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they make it work. It was not too long ago that, uh, that Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and a, a couple other Titans um, got together and said they were going to try and put together their own joint initiative to solve healthcare in America. And after a few years of trying, it, it didn't really work and they disbanded. Um, I think this is Amazon sort of uh, next run at this. And it'll be interesting to see if this becomes, and I'm not joking here, if this becomes part of the Amazon Prime subscription. If this becomes something where wow. in, in addition to you get the video streaming service, you get two-day delivery, uh, you get discounts at Whole Foods. Um, if there is a One Life Healthcare um, center near you, you get some basic form of health coverage or visits covered or urgent care or something like that. Um, I think it, we're probably at least a year away from finding out what form that takes. Um, if they decide to brand it differently, um, which would be interesting to see if it, I don't know that Amazon healthcare necessarily um, uh, resonates with people, but, uh, but we'll see. It's, it, it's an interesting move. And it's, again, it's not going to surprise me if this becomes a subscription that they just sort of make available to people. I have long had a sort of dystopian vision of the future in which large companies that aim to provide a little bit of everything in your life become the new nation states of the world. Because at a certain point, your prime membership could become more important to you than your citizenship. If it's for example, the place that you get your employment. Maybe you work for Amazon. I mean, they'd like the whole world to work for them. Maybe you get your, your health, your entertainment, your, your stuff. It's like, you know, I was making a joke about Parks and Rec a moment ago. Like, maybe it's like food and stuff. It's where you get your food. And also most of your stuff. Most of your stuff. I mean, it really is. It does bring to mind the old Japanese business model of the Keiretsu, which was a, a sort of a, an agglomeration of different businesses that were all in sync with one another, that we're all coordinated with one another. And it seems like Amazon is managing that under one roof in, in a, a sort of amazing and sort of creepy way. I, I just, it's, I guess the point I'm driving at is that last night I had to order a new doorknob for my daughter's door. And she said, dad, 
I need a new doorknob. I'm like, you're right. Your doorknob is broken. And about 15 seconds later, I had gone on Amazon and I had one clicked, ordered it, and it's going to arrive probably in about 20 minutes. And I was struggling to explain to her what a miracle that is. Like what, what a profound change in our lives that is. And I'm just trying to take this new news about their acquisition of One Life Healthcare to its logical extreme. Where will it be? in five or 10 years, and I don't know, but as this gets integrated into the fabric of what this company with such deep reach into our lives is able to do, I, I, I just, I don't know where that ends up. It's, it's sort of mind bending. It is. And uh, again, I think we'll, you know, we'll check back uh, in the next year or so. Um, Amazon is due to report earnings later this week. I'm sure they will get questions about this on their conference call. Um, so maybe we'll get some more color in terms of what they're thinking about in terms of timing, um, how long it'll take the acquisition to close, um, what their plans are. I mean, the, to me, the obvious question is, wh- when do you expect this acquisition to close? And is this your plan to make it part of Amazon Prime? Um, and we'll see what they say. Well, I have to move as we wind down the show from a kind of highfalutin, high-level, perhaps sublime thought to the truly ridiculous. You have some sad news to share with all our listeners about Choco Tacos. Would you like to reveal this news bomb? So maybe it's just me. Maybe the Choco Taco is not uh, does not resonate with you or, or any of your listeners, but I'm sure everyone is familiar with the Klondike Bar. If only from the commercial, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Well, one of the, the products in the Klondike suite of, of frozen desserts is the Choco Taco, which is a taco-shaped uh, waffle uh, ice cream delicacy. And Unilever, the publicly traded parent company of Klondike, announced that they are discontinuing the Choco Taco. And... Uh, I, I wanted to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One, as you said, it's a little ridiculous. Um, it's also kind of funny. Um, but in a very real sense, this is part of where we are in the economy. In the same way that uh, Walmart is making the choice around their inventory, around cutting prices, um, this is a decision that Unilever had to make. Um, I don't know the sales. No- I, I don't know the sales numbers on Choco Taco, but I'm guessing uh, for Unilever it was. Hey, look, we're not moving in uh, as many units as we need to. Um, we can't justify this, and uh, it actually makes a lot of sense. It's not in its own very small way. It is not all that different than what Procter and Gamble did a decade ago. We're basically Procter and Gamble, and everyone listening right now, Matt, somewhere in your house, in my house, and in everyone's li- who's listening to us in their house, there are Procter and Gamble products. I guarantee you. But a decade ago, Procter and Gamble had many more products in their portfolio, and they sort of set about saying, you know what? If we're going to grow as a company, if we're going to reward shareholders and become more profitable. We have too many products and we need to get rid of some of them. So I, I, from a business standpoint, I applaud what Unilever is doing. They're not taking anything for granted in their product suite and they're cutting some of what they perceive to be the dead wood. That's the business part of me. The taste bud part of me is just very sad that the Choco Taco will be no more. 
I am going to give a hot take. Unilever is right to do this. Choco tacos <laughs> are uniformly disappointing. Every single time I've had a Choco Taco, I have been filled with anticipation that has then been dashed because they suck. They, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the taco part is stale, dry, and sad. And the Choco part is subpar. Choco Tacos deserve to be pulled from the shelves. And, um, you know, they're like, they're basically hot garbage. So um, good job. I applaud you, Unilever. And um, I'm looking forward to future innovation. In, look, invent a new taco product if you want. I don't care. But, uh, you know, and look, by the way, if I've, if I've angered any of our listeners who are big fans of the Choco Taco, fine. Send me, send, post on social media. Go on to, go on to Facebook, find me. And give me your best case for why these are not summer's most disgusting treats. Chris Hill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.